the words of Ultimate Fakebook, nothing ever lasts for long. And as the magic and wonder of 2017 came to a close, a dark cloud began to hover on the edge of our skies. And even though it would take a full year to block out the sun entirely, its presence on the horizon and its steady, slow movement in our direction felt like a beast from another world coming to devour all we had built and everything we had come to love. Well, almost everything. I'm Jacob Slayton, and this is my entire life. So to bring you up to speed, at the beginning of 2018, life was pretty good, honestly, you know, and and things were working out well, and it just felt like there was like momentum in, in the right directions, you know, in so many different things. And even though this year brought with it a lot of pain and heartache, I don't want to mislead you and make you think that everything fell apart because at the end of the day, my family and my kids stuck with me as well as, you know, a solid group of friends. But man, it, it just felt like the end of everything else. In, in so many ways, it was the end of everything else. At the beginning of the year, in January, the pastor of our church, my good friend Craig, uh, retired after 30 years of ministry and serving the church. And, you know, he was almost 70 years old. And, you know, he had built this church up that we had been a part of for, you know, 10 years at least. And uh, we had been there 10 years, but he had started it, you know, 30 years before. And, you know, it it just became everything that, you know, we were wrapped up in, like our community all existed within this church. And I mean, not all, but, you know, largely, like, that's just kind of the way that we sort of built our life, like all of our friends and everything. And like, you know, the church was growing and our friend group was expanding and new people were coming to church with us. And, but it just seemed like, you know, that's where our home base was you know, if that makes sense. And in January of that year, Craig retired, um, which he absolutely earned it. And uh, none of this is on him in any way. But uh, but that's what happened. And when you are at a church, uh, where the, you know, essentially the, the founding pastor, he wasn't the founding pastor, but he essentially was like, everything that Fellowship North was, and had become was essentially, um, you know, under Craig's leadership. And so when when you have a church like that and you know the the 30 year pastor retires some of you guys know that things can really change things can really really change and none of us really knew you know what was going to be in store but it was rough it was really really rough so at that point in time in addition to Craig we had a couple of other pastors, you know, on on the staff, a couple of younger guys, a couple of older guys. And, you know, it was a, he wasn't just like the only pastor, right? 
And, you know, in, in the midst of all of this other stuff, you know, we have this, there's a great like kids ministry and the men's ministry, the men of the Ozark stuff that I was like super involved with is all like vibrant and full. And the women at this point had started women of the Ozarks. And my wife was heavily involved with that, with a team of women that were, you know, just fantastic people. And, you know, I, I had been on the greeting team at church for years and Emma, my daughter Emma, would would serve with me on the greeting team, and we would have our month where we were on every Sunday, and it was just like a fun thing. Like we were, I just can't really overstate how involved we were. And in fact, um, at the end of 2017, the leadership of our church asked me to. Um, I'm going to get the phrasing of this wrong, but essentially they asked me to um to to begin to train and or to begin to consider the potential for me to be an elder at the church. Some called it elder training, some called it leadership training, you know, I I don't know. We called it junior elder club, you know, because it was me and I think there was like seven or eight other guys. And and uh, and so at the end of 2017, they asked me to join this what we call Junior Elder Club, where you know it's just like basically a small group where um, you know the idea is that they may ask you to be an elder at the end of this training thing or whatever. You know, it was it's a little pretty pretty loose the way it was going, but you know I was like flattered and and um, you know humbled and you know looking forward to. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe doing that, you know, I, I didn't know what was in store for me, but I said, sure, you know, I'm, I'm open to opportunities. And so, you know, we had begun this like process of, of doing this elder training thing. So anyway, that's kind of the foundation. All right. Um, I, I'm, I'm just painting the picture to let you guys know how deeply involved we were at the church. My wife was serving in the kids ministry programs. And again, like on the women's thing as well. And, and at this point I had, I was so involved with men's ministry and men of the Ozarks that I was, basically Craig's right-hand man for many of the Ozarks trips. I was his basically like sidekick or co-leader for those weekends. And I was going on every trip and really I was organizing them um, essentially like on the front end. I would I was putting the groups together and putting the teams together and, and kind of putting it all together really. And then when we got there, you know, Craig and I would lead it together. Whereas, you know, he, he had always had like a sidekick, you know, in the past, different people and stuff. But I had kind of become the primary like sidekick for Craig on these trips, which was like everything that I ever wanted to do, man. It was like, if I ever had a ministry like gifting in my life, it was and is men's ministry. You know, I just, I understand how guys think and I understand, you know, what makes them tick and, and, and the problems and the, and just life, you know, I, I just get it in a lot of ways as it relates to men. I don't understand women. I don't understand kids. I'm pretty good at understanding men. <laughs> and uh, so it just felt so like fulfilling and awesome. And and, and that was kind of like, in my mind, a part of the reason why they asked me to consider, you know, potentially becoming an elder at the church, you know, it was just kind of a recognition of my involvement and my dedication to, you know, Jesus and his church, you know, in the midst of all of this stuff, you know, there's this general sense that like, well, what's going to happen after Craig retires? You know, nobody really knows. And so, 
you know, it was an, I don't, I don't want to say it was like thin ice, but it was just like un, uncharted waters. Like, you know, what, what, what do we do when, uh, you know, kind of our leader is, is uh, stepping down? You know, what do, what do you do with that? But in the midst of that, I was excited because there was, you know, the other pastors at the church I really liked a lot too. So even though there was some uncertainty with Craig retiring, there was a lot of uh, excitement about, at least in me, about what, uh, you know, chapter two or chapter three was going to look like or whatever you want to call it. Now, I've set the stage, okay? And going forward, as I talk about um, church stuff, uh, when I say things that are hard and difficult, I don't like them to just sit there and be hard and difficult. I, I just don't like it. I, I need to paint flowers around it. And so what I'm about to tell you right now and throughout really the rest of it um, has been the hardest parts of my life. And so I'm asking you for, you know, just tenderness, you know, as I as I share this stuff with you guys, because I think that there's nothing better in life than to be known. And uh, so I'm inviting you guys to know who I am. And I'm hoping that if some of you guys out there have had some of these experiences and just difficulty like this, that um, that this would be meaningful to you. So um, so anyway, join with me. Okay. So as all of this is happening, uh, this is January or February of 2018. One of the most significant things that happened um, that was just like unbelievably symbolic at the at the time, and even more so looking back, was I was uh, taking some pictures of of a, a family up at church, which I'd done many times in the past. And but um, we 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 were using a part of the church that's called the Lookout which is like the uh, the top floor of the church building here in North Little Rock. And the church itself is kind of built on a hill, literally. And so the top floor of this um, church, it's called the Lookout because there's glass windows all the way around. And you can really have this pretty amazing view of the city and kind of the surrounding area. And so we're up on the Lookout floor and we're shooting some photos of this family, a, a great family uh, of people that, that I, I love all of them dearly. And we're shooting photos up there uh, just mainly because it was a big open space where I could set up this backdrop and all this stuff. But we're shooting photos up there and that day it was really windy. It was crazy windy. And, and again, we're up high and there was kind of some like storm clouds like coming in, you know, in the distance. And so we were like watching those, you know, not out of fear, but just it's just cool to see that kind of thing. Right. And they kind of kept approaching and the and the trees down below us on the ground. We're on like the third or fourth floor of this building and the trees down below us were really moving and shaking. And our church has this gigantic steeple like a cross a, a gigantic wooden cross that isn't on the roof of the church, but it's actually built down into the ground, um, like in the concrete down on the like, like on the parking lot level. And this, and it's behind the building, and it rises up, you know, above the building, a number of feet. I mean, I, I don't really know, but it was it was at least, you know, a, a sixty to eighty foot tall cross, just enormous. And it wasn't like one solid piece of wood; it was like a built thing, you know, and it was just massive and it towered over the church. And so we're up there and it's, it's also, I mean, it's above us, even though we're in the top floor, it's still above us, but we have this perfect view of this gigantic cross from the lookout where we're shooting photos. And 
we're standing there looking out the windows and the storm's coming up and the wind is really churning. And again, like in our minds, you have to keep in mind, we're all just sort of very well aware of the changes that are happening at our church and the winds ripping and raging. And this cross is up there and we're standing there watching it and the cross is swaying and moving and it's really swaying and moving and it's moving even more and more and more. And I'm standing there talking with a guy and we're looking out the window, just watching it. And I said, man, that cross is going to fall. And he said, you might be right. And sure enough, after a few more minutes, that cross started swaying so much in each direction that it, it swayed past the point of balance. And that sucker smashed all the way down. I mean, it toppled from the base. It broke at the base and the whole thing came down in one piece, like a, like a lumberjack swinging an axe. Boom! And miraculously, it missed every other part of the building and and the power lines and even the dumpster that was in the parking lot. But it just kind of landed perfectly. Like if you were chopping it down, you, you couldn't have let it fall in a better spot. It just landed perfectly in the parking lot and just smashed and like exploded into thousands of pieces, just absolutely exploded. And the, again, the storm and, and the, like the, the, the sky was just also like um, visceral. And we're standing there and we, we see this cross fall and just hit the ground. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like if that's not, I mean, that's like a sign of biblical proportions. Like having your, your like absolutely like the symbol of Jesus at your church for 30 years just smash and hit the ground like almost to the day when our pastor retires, it was like, oh my God. I mean, just imagine that for a second. Like the church you go to and, and things are changing and all of a sudden like the cross hits the ground. Like nowadays we don't attribute those types of things to God. Um, like maybe we should um, because yeah, like it was wind and weather and everything and nature and like soon enough, a 60 foot tall wooden cross is going to fall. You know, they just don't last forever. But like the timing was just bizarre. And I remember standing there looking at it and I thought, wow, like that is, uh, that's something right there. And, and, and the guy that I was standing there looking at it with was like, you know, holy shit. It, it was just a sign for like the things to come. Okay. That was a sign for things to come. Now, before I continue with the rest of the church drama that happens that year and takes us into 2019. We're going to put a pin in that for a moment, and I have to take a step away from all of that uh, and take you guys on a trip with me uh, that we did that year. And, and it was truly like the best, you know, like final vacation and just like dream and, and exit from all this drama that was going to come. I mean, it was just the best step away from all that stuff. I mean, it was truly like God was saying, like, you're about to be in for a mess. And I got to take you out of that and, and, and give you some peace and rest and joy and fill up your tank as much as I can so that you can deal with what's coming next, because boy, it is not going to be pretty. And so, I mean, even though we didn't know it at the time, that's absolutely what, uh, 
what was happening. So in June of 2018, my family and I had been planning for years, a couple of years, a gigantic family camping trip out west. Um, we were going to just get the hell out of town, take the kids, and just do like the biggest and most epic trip we could possibly imagine. And, uh, and, and we were going to take five whole weeks to do it. Because in the summertime, in the heat of the summer, I'm not really working that much as a photographer. And my kids are out of school and, you know, we just, we, we can do it. You know, we got time and, you know, we had, we had saved up a stack of cash and everything. And so, uh, so, so we hit the road in June and, uh, I believe it was like basically right on Makai's birthday or, or right around there, but it was, which is June 19th. So it was like the end of June and we hit the road. We, we pack up the camper and we pack up the kids, we pack up all the stuff. And, and we load up and we drive up to Kansas City to see uh, Makai's parents for a couple days before we really like hit the trip in earnest. And to be honest with you, I could start a whole nother podcast to tell you the story of this trip because it's epic and huge and amazing. And truly, like every single day of this five weeks has enough stories to tell an hour episode for each day of them, to be honest. Uh, but I can't do that here. I got to jam pack it into 2018. Maybe I'll do this, you know, in, in a future podcast or something. But for right now, I'm going to give you the abridged version. So we leave from Kansas City and we drive to Colorado. And I'm going to hit these things quick because it's just amazing. And just like with all the other stories in the past on here, I just want you to join me. Just get in the car with us, pack up. You got, we got maps, we got our route set, we got plans. We got campsites booked all over the place and we're hitting the road. We drive to Colorado and we're heading towards Lost Lake Campground, which is outside of Crested Butte, Colorado. But to get there, we needed to spend a night um, on the way. And so we didn't really have plans for where we were going to spend that night. We just had it in our, in our agenda to, you know, catch a hotel, you know, somewhere along the way. So we stop in Colorado Springs to hang out with a friend for dinner and then we keep driving and Micaiah gets on Expedia. And so we're looking for a, a hotel somewhere in between Colorado City, uh, Colorado Springs and Crested Butte to, to grab a hotel for that night. So Micaiah finds something in this town called Victor. It's like the Victor Hotel. And it was, you know, it was, it was like this cute, like historic hotel or something. And the pictures were cool. And so it was like, great, let's book it. You know, it was like, however far away, like wherever it was seemed like the right amount of time, right? So we booked this hotel and we start driving there. And what we didn't realize was that the road to Victor was like a nightmare. It was, it was, it was almost like outside of Colorado Springs, it was almost entirely like uphill. We end up on dirt roads and we're just cruising. It's dark. We got the camper. We're on, we're on these mountain roads, hairpin turns. And it's like, what can you're out of cell service? And it's like, what can you do, but just continue to follow the map. Right. I mean, there wasn't even a place for me to turn around on this road. So we're just cruising up this road. We finally arrive at the little town of Victor and uh, I mean, it's just like super high elevation. There's the town is almost dead. We check into this old historic like hotel that, that was like from it, it almost looked like it was from a ghost town, you know, and uh, and there's like this junky old elevator. But it was cool. It was like exciting. And, you know, we're there and we get out and, you know, we crash in this hotel and it was just like 
it was just so fun to like be with my family and you know kids are always excited to be sleeping in hotels anyway especially like interesting ones that are a little spooky and and weird and you know just you're in the mountains and it was just so exciting and i remember i got a uh, i had a we had a cooler we had the cooler and and all this you know bikes and stuff in the back of the truck and and we had our cooler basically packed out for the the you know camping trip and so it was all ready so i grab a beer out of the cooler and take it up to the hotel room and i'm sitting there in the bed you know drinking a beer and kind of playing on my phone while the kids are going to bed and everything and it was just like we're doing something cool here and uh anyway i gotta keep moving on so we leave victor hotel we're looking for a place to eat breakfast the next morning we're kind of like asking the locals like hey is there any like cafe or diner or anything like that and they're like oh yeah go up to the uh the casino i can't remember the name of the casino we're like great let's see at the buffet at the casino we'll show a kids show the kids a casino and that'll be funny so we go to this casino in this little country town in colorado and it was just so fun and wild and the kids are eating at this buffet and like man if you're a parent and like it's just so much fun to see your family like just just happy and excited for for like a thing anything that you're doing together and I could just tell right off the bat, like this was going to be an amazing trip. So we eat at the casino. Then we drive uh, all the way into Crested Butte and up towards Lost Lake, Colorado, which there seems to be two different Lost Lakes in Colorado. And I don't know how to differentiate one from the other, but well, I guess the, the one we went to was closer to Crested Butte. And we had found this uh, campground like on a map and it was first come, first serve, but we, we knew that it was going to be really beautiful. And so we go up there and they had one campsite available, um, you know, for whatever time, you know, we were there. And and so we swoop in real quick. It wasn't the best campsite there, but it was pretty good. And we were just happy to have a spot and not have to go anywhere else. We camped there for a few days. We um, We hike around. I mean, it's just beautiful. We catch fish. We, we we draw pictures. In fact, the, the last night that we were there, we all went out to the lake and uh, Micaiah had this great idea that we're all going to draw a picture of like the scene. We're going to have a little art moment. And so we're sitting there drawing pictures of the lake and the mountains and everything. And all of a sudden we see this moose uh, walk out across the lake. And that was like something on my bucket list. Like I wanted to see a bull moose in the wild. And and there it was. And when we checked into the campground, the, the campground host told us like there's a moose in the area. So if you see it, just walk away. They can be very dangerous and aggressive. Um, do not approach the moose. These things will kill you. And so it was like, I was just excited. We were kind of on edge, you know, the whole time and just looking for the moose. And sure enough, like across the lake, this moose comes out and there's a little moose. Uh, I don't know what you call it, a moose cub behind it um like a father and a and a child moose and they're looking around and sort of you know grazing around the edge of the lake and there's these two ladies in a kayak on the lake and so it's like this beautiful picturesque moment and so we're sitting there watching it we're going oh my gosh there's a moose and I had my camera with me I pull out my camera I'm taking pictures of the moose and it was probably 200 yards away you know we we were fully safe it was on the other side of the lake from us but we're watching the moose and we're watching these ladies in the canoe and the canoe starts to paddle closer to the moose. And I'm thinking, Ooh, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But sure enough, the moose like turns around with its like little baby moose and, uh, and walks back into like the tall grass on the edge of the lake and like disappears. But the ladies in the canoe keep paddling over towards it and, um, and they get closer and closer 
And then the moose comes out of the, the grass again. Like it comes out of the woods again and like appears on the side of the, of the lake. And the ladies turn around immediately. And at that point, when they turned around, they were probably like 30 feet away from the moose. But they turn around and start paddling away. And the moose comes out of the woods and into the water like with a vengeance. And of course, like it's trying to protect its baby, you know. I mean, they're territorial anyway. But when a moose has a baby, you know, all rules are off. Like they'll do anything. And um, so this moose is like barreling out at the water at these ladies. And, and the moose's legs are like six feet tall, right? So it can stand up in pretty deep water. And it's like gaining on them. And the ladies are paddling like with all their might. Um, I mean, they're paddling hard to get away. And I'm literally like steady shooting photos. Just snap, 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 snap. And Micaiah had kind of like hovered over near the kids like to like close their eyes or cover their eyes like if the moose attacked this canoe because like we just didn't know what was going to happen. And finally, like the moose gets really close. I mean, it was probably six to eight feet away from these ladies. And it appeared to me that the moose got out so far that it couldn't um, stand up in the water anymore. It had gotten, you know, too deep. And a moose can swim just fine, but I guess it had like given up on uh, keep, you know, continuing to chase these ladies down. So the moose turns back and, and walks off into the woods with the baby again. And the ladies are just like, you know, going, oh my God, you know, and everything. And we were one of the only few people out there at the time. And the ladies see us and they saw that we had seen that. And so they paddle over to me and they're like, oh my gosh, did you see that? That was insane. We're kind of all just freaking out about it. And I tell the ladies, listen, Today's your lucky day because I am a photographer and I have photos of that whole encounter and uh, and I would love to share them with you and they're like oh my god you got to be kidding me you know and so um, so later on you know a couple of days later I I was able to email them you know a link to those photos and like how cool is that like imagine you're in the canoe and you had this encounter and like a professional photographer happened to capture it you know because you're gonna tell that story and so now they have some some great photos to go with it. So anyway, that was Lost Lake. All kinds of other great stuff happened there, but we got to move on. We pack up from Lost Lake and we start driving out to Arches National Park, which I was super excited about. I had never um, been in the state of Utah before, and so it was a new state for me. And really, all these states are new for our kids. You know, they hadn't ever been out that way before. And so we get into Utah, and we uh, we go straight to Dead Horse Point State Park. I think it was a state park. Maybe it wasn't a state park, but the campground is called Dead Horse Point, which is kind of cool anyway. And if you've never been to Arches or Utah at all, I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just absolutely like those sort of just vast, expansive desert landscapes with these towers and spires and these plateaus and and it's just like red and orange and beautiful and the sky is blue and it was amazing. And so we get to Dead Horse Point and I think we were there one night before we were going to uh, meet up with our friends, the Whitleys, that had come out to join us. They had driven all the way out from Arkansas to join us for, you know, uh, a week of our trip. And so uh, the next morning we wake up at Dead Horse Point and we we're going to meet the Whitleys at Arches National Park, which was really just, um, you know, a couple miles away from Dead Horse Point. And so, uh, you know, at, at the appointed time, we load up in the car and we start driving out to, De to uh, Arches. And again, like, I just can't overstate the fact that in the car, um, there's just this sense of excitement, you know, and the kids are like getting along. And I mean, for me personally, there's 
nothing more exciting to me than when I look over my wife and she has this look of wonder in her eyes. Um, because you know what, to, to be honest, if she would agree with me, she, she can be a little bit of a worrier and she can get a little bit bogged down with, uh, you know, the troubles and struggles of life and stuff. And to look over and it's like, oh, you can just see that look in her eyes. Like she doesn't have a care in the world and she's nothing but excited about what's coming. Just makes me feel like a freaking champion, to be honest. And, uh, so, so we're driving out towards, um, to arches and up, up ahead on the road, we see the Whitley's camper. And oh my gosh, I, I, I can't tell you how exciting it was to just be there with our friends. And we haul ass and we drive up and we pull up next to them and we got the windows down and we're screaming and hollering and they're in there and they're screaming and hollering. It's like, yes, like this part of the trip has begun and it's so exciting. So we go to Arches, we get in line and, you know, we, we have a great time at Arches. I mean, we just wander around and do all the fun stuff and, and climb all over the place and, we go back to, to the campground at Dead Horse Point. And we set up, and I remember the first night sitting out there under the stars with the Whitleys. You know, you put the kids to bed, and you're sitting outside in your camp chairs, and Dead Horse Point is on, like, a plateau that's kind of up above um, the horizon. Like, it's kind of up high. And so, and it's just desert all the way around you. And so when the sun sets, it's like below you. And when the sun rises, it's below you. And so you have that much sky all around you. I've never seen so much sky in my life. And the stars were just screaming at us um, from the sky. I mean, just imagine looking up and it's just like, wow, like unbelievable. We're sitting there. Every 10 seconds, there's a shooting star and there's satellites and airplanes going. It's just just amazing. We just sat there just laughing and, and talking and being silly and stuff. And anyway, we have an amazing time at Dead Horse Point. And after a few days there, we pick up and we uh, we drive out to Kodachrome State Park, which is, you know, it's quite a few hours away. I, I don't remember how many, maybe five or six hours away, um, you know, towards the uh, southwest part of the state uh, there in Utah. And on the way, we had an interesting situation. Um, you know, these types of trips way out west you plug something into your phone and your map and you just follow it, you know, and, and everything is so expansive out there. And so sparsely populated that like you can go a long way without seeing, you know, much of a sign of civilization and you'll be on dirt roads for a long time. And so anyway, we're driving from dead horse point to Kodachrome state park and we kind of get separated from the Whitley's they're going there too with us. And they, they were up ahead of us, um, a certain, Actually, no, they were behind us. And so we're driving and driving and driving on these long dirt roads, no cell service, but you're following the map. And after a while, I realize, oh, Whitley's not behind me anymore. And so I stop and wait, and they don't come up, you know. And it's like, oh, shoot, like what happened? And so we eventually turn around and kind of backtrack. And a couple miles back, we see their their car on the side of the road with their camper, you know, behind it. And they're, they've got a flat tire and it's like, ah, shoot. But like at the same time, like it's still exciting. And, and, uh, Emily is just so great. She's kind of one of these people that's like going to make the most of any situation, which I'm, I'm the same way. And so I pull up and she's already got Andrew's up under the truck trying to fix the flat tire. And Emily's got a watermelon out. She's slicing watermelon for the kids. And let's make a party out of it, right? Why not? And I, to be honest, I kind of enjoy the flat tire fixing on the side of the road anyway. It's like, 
one of those fun things of life that you just kind of have to do sometimes. And anyway, um, we're up under the car and we're, we're working on this flat tire and we've got two problems. Number one, we can't get the spare out from where it is. It's one of those spare tire situations where it's up under the car and you have to get up under there and turn the thing and then it lowers down. It's kind of a pain in the ass to get it out. That's problem number one, getting the spare out. Problem number two is jacking the car up enough to get the flat off um, because we were on this road surface that was really soft. It was one of those like, it's like a dirt road, but but like it was one of those dirt roads that's just kind of soft. And and so we we keep jacking it up and the jack's kind of like sinking into the dirt and we can't get it to like hold on. And, you know, we're doing all the tricks that you, you know, know how to do and we didn't really have any like, you know, anything to set it on of any substance. So we were just having trouble getting it jacked up. Anyway, after we get the spare off, we finally get that down. And now we're dealing with getting it jacked up. And we had been there for, I don't know, a couple hours, maybe not a couple hours, but close to that. And we finally get the car jacked up enough to get the flat off. Okay. So we've got the flat off and but we we have to jack it up even more to get the spare on okay because the flat was flat so it's easy to get off it's not as big and the spare is fully inflated and so you have to jack it up even more to get the spare on there right so what happened was andrew is um jacking up the car from underneath and what we had done was we were jacking it from basically the center of the back axle because that's where the, the spare was, or that's where the uh, the flat was on the back uh, left side of the car. So we're jacking it up from the center of that axle, because that was just the best spot we could get. And he's fully up under the car, um, up underneath that that uh, rear differential. And he's jacking it up, and he, he gets it up to the point that I can get the, basically the, the top two or top three, um, you know, holes of the spare tire onto those posts to screw it on, but I can't get it up under on the bottom ones, if that makes sense. So I've, I've got a little bit of purchase on the top three bolts, but none on the bottom. Okay. So it's at a little bit of an angle, but he's getting it. And as he kind of gets it a little bit higher and higher, um, I'm able to get it a little bit more under there. But after I'd gotten it under by those, those first three bolts, just a little bit, He's fully up under the car, and the car starts to move. And guys, it was like there was a moment of just sheer panic uh, because it's like when, when something starts to move and you don't expect it to move, it takes a second for you to register what's really happening. But in just a second, the car starts to roll, and it fell off of that jack. And Andrew is under the car, right? His whole body's up under there, and he doesn't say anything. And I get down low after it fell, and I said, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? Andrew, are you okay? And he doesn't say much for the first second, and I can't really see what's going on. He goes, he finally goes, yeah. And I look up under there, and that rear differential is touching his back. And, and, and if it had come down another inch, it would have pinned him and possibly broken his spine, to be honest. Um. And the fact that it didn't do more is still a mystery to me. Um, and the only reason it didn't fall any further was because it caught on those bolts that I had the spare tire like leaned up into. 
And if that spare tire hadn't have been there, it would have fallen all the way down to the brake rotor. And it would have guaranteed killed him. Or if not killed him, um, severely injured him, broken his back, paralyzed him or something. And if it wasn't for that top edge of that wheel uh, being sort of jammed in there onto those bolts. I mean, this is the closest I've ever seen anyone come to like sincere, like, holy shit injury, right? Um, and he's laying up under there and oh my God, I mean, it just blew my mind. And I remember Emily kind of ran over and she's like, are you okay? And it's like, yep, yep, we're all good. But in my mind, like, I just thought for a second, like, if that had been worse, what would have had to happen? Okay, we're outside of cell range. Uh, and, and there's me and two ladies and five kids and we have a, a really heavy SUV and the other adult man with any, you know, extra strength to offer is pinned up under the car. And I don't know what I would have done. We were already having enough trouble jacking the car up as it is and the jacks. Now it's under there with them. I just don't know what I would have done. Um, I think that I probably would have had to call the women over with me and the three of us would just have to bare hand that car and see if we can hulk out and lift it up off of them, which, you know, I believe anything's possible, but like, my God, that would have been uh, quite a feat um, to say the least. And, uh, but anyway, like, thank God that was okay. Um, and it, and it didn't uh, do anything more, but, but geez, like later that day, me and me and Andrew were just like, Dude, do you realize how narrowly we just escaped, like, the worst thing that could have ever happened? And it was just like, holy shit. So anyway, uh, we, we get the spare tire on, and we get back on our way, right? We continue on to Kodachrome uh, State Park, and it, it's just a beautiful, one of the most beautiful state parks, one of the most beautiful parks I've ever been to, like, that I wasn't expecting, right? It's just beautiful, like very well manicured and, and just like a really clean, like the restrooms were like five-star hotel style restrooms out there. Not really, but pretty amazing. Best, best campground uh, restrooms I've ever seen by far. We had a great time out there. We celebrated the 4th of July out there and, and just, just had an absolute blast. And every night we did these like sunset cruises in the car with the windows down and blaring um, the greatest showman soundtrack and, just singing and laughing and enjoying and, and, you know, just, just having an amazing time. And the kids were getting along and it, it was just so, so cool. And after Kodachrome State Park, we leave there and we have one day in Zion National Park, our last day with the Whitleys. And uh, we, we, we explored Zion. It was amazing. We, I did not spend anywhere close to the amount of time that I really want to spend there, but it was, um, it was just spectacular. If you've never been to Zion, I had seen pictures, but the pictures don't do it justice. It just blew me away. It was so amazing. And I can't wait to go back and, and hike the Narrows Canyon um, one of these days. That's on the bucket list for sure. But it was amazing to see Zion. After Zion, we, we, uh, we leave the Whitleys and we drive uh, farther west into California, across Nevada. And that night, that drive was so insane um, we end up again, like on a, on a dirt road and it's just out in the middle of nowhere. There's cows on the road, there's potholes. It's like midnight. And we're just like, 
just kept looking over at Micaiah and we're just like kind of having this like nervous laughter like well what what's gonna happen next like there's literally like we're just driving and I remember there's like just a horse on the road just like a wild horse just standing in the road and he just like trots off and I'm going maybe 15 miles an hour it's just a terrible dirt road and we're crossing from uh, Nevada into California and it was just bizarre. We, we ended up making it to California. We, uh, we get a little sort of roadside motel there. Uh, gosh, what was it called? Oh, it was called the Shady Motel. And it was like, yeah, this place is shady. This is a good name for this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it was fine. We, we stay at the Shady Motel. And then we keep driving on to Levining, California, which is where Mono Lake is. And it's also kind of the eastern entrance to Yosemite National Park, which was going to be our next big stop. But we stop at, uh, at, at Levining, and we stay at the campground there. And it, man, coming from Utah and Nevada, where it's just desert, 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 and pulling into California, it was like, as soon as we crossed into California, I turned on the Grateful Dead song, Estimated Profit, you know, California. And it's just like, palm trees and like lush grass and it's like dude this place is magical man and uh so we pull into lee vining and we get our campsite and our campsite was at this little uh, rv park uh the lee vining rv park and uh and our our campsite itself was literally just on like some of the most lush grass ever like i pull my car onto the grass and it's like perfect pristine beautiful like golf course fairway grass even better than that and, and we almost like get out of the car and just like lay down in the grass and just kind of roll around in the cool grass and finally we're like out of the dirt land you know the dirt and dust of the desert and into the uh, the beautiful lush scenery of of california and we spend a few days there we go to mono lake we're floating around in the salt water it's amazing and beautiful and on the last night there we go to the whoa nelly deli in levine in california which is at a mobile gas station um right there literally like not the entrance to Yosemite, but like on the like the, the road that you turn on to get into Yosemite, it's kind of the last stop before you, you, you go into Yosemite itself. And a lot has been said about the Woe Nelly Deli out there, but uh, the cool thing about this for me was to take you way back to 2003 when Micaiah and I had our first date. Um, I remember talking to her about the Woe Nelly Deli in Levine in California. And because she had worked at Yosemite uh, for a summer when she was in college um, as a housekeeper. And we were on our very first date at Waffle House. She was telling me about her time in California at Yosemite and how she would go to the Woe Nelly Deli and eat these fish tacos and hang out. And the way she talked about it, she had this like, sparkle in her eyes and this this glint of like wonderment that was like oh wow there's something way deeper to this person that I haven't even scratched the surface of yet and literally on that first date to hear her talk about Yosemite I decided right then and there I said in my heart and in my my mind and my body I decided I'm going to take this woman to Yosemite uh, long after we've been married, and we're and I'm gonna I'm gonna see what this spark is all about. I'm gonna I'm gonna take her to the place that makes her come alive. And uh, my God, when I pu- we pull into the Woe Nelly Deli, that spirit and that spark came alive, man. And not that I had never seen it before, but like you know how it is when you get somebody to the place that has a little piece of their heart and their whole their home. 
man, it was just so good for me to take her over there, you know. And she's showing us all around and telling her, telling us how it was back when she was there and stuff. And we get the fish tacos, and there's a band playing outside. And you know what? She, the whole time we were there, she was just laughing. She was just so happy and just laughing. And, you know, the, our kids are dancing. And it's like, God, this is so cool. Like, when she was here as a young person in college, she dreamed about coming here as an adult and bringing her kids here. And now she's done it, you know. And I got to help that happen, you know. And it's just, it, it was just, uh, it, it just filled me up all the way up. And we have this great picture of our family outside that that uh, gas station there uh, against the mobile sign. And like in the picture, like Rosie's like falling down and we're all just laughing and Makai can't stop laughing, man. It just made me so freaking happy. Um, and so anyway, the next day we drive into Yosemite and pulling into Yosemite is, it's unlike anything else. You know, it, it's so cool that one of the coolest places on the planet happens to be in the same country that I was born in right? Because people travel to Yosemite from all over the world, not just for rock climbing, but for like everything that it has to offer. It's just one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And uh, so we pull in and we had actually booked our campsites for Yosemite all the way back in like February, I think. Yeah, because you have to book them six months out or they only become available six months out. And when I booked them, you know, we wanted something in the valley and um, they sell out in, in just seconds. They sell out in seconds. And so, you know, it's just hard to get them. So we actually built the whole trip around the dates where we were able to get, you know, Yosemite campsites. So so pulling in, I remember we talked to like uh, one of the rangers there. We stop up in uh, the Tuolumne Meadows area and we're, we're talking to one of the rangers. And he said, so you guys camping? And, and I said, yeah, yeah, we're camping down the valley. And he goes, oh, I don't think so, man. You got to book those sites six months out. And I said, oh, no, we did. And he goes, oh, good for you. He said, I have people come in all the time thinking they're just going to get a campsite, you know, that night. And, and he's like, you can't, you know, it just doesn't happen. So I, I felt really good that we had that. And so we anyway, we pull into the valley and just driving in. There's so much to say about this, but it's just amazing. We pull in and we kind of I remember one of the first things that we did after we got the camper set up was we get the bikes out and I get my skateboard out and we just start cruising and just kind of cruising around the campground. We're in the Lower Pines campground, if you've ever been there. And, and it's just every single campsite there is amazing. And it's just jam packed with people and um, to be honest, like I, th I thought it was strange, but, um, the campsite that we were in was like almost 90% of the people that were in the little campsite loop that we were in were Mexican. It was like this big family camping trip with like all these Mexican people. And it was so cool. Cause there was like little ladies, like patting out tortillas, like at the campsites and there's all this Mexican food being cooked. And we were just like, damn, like, how do we get in on some of this, man? I want to eat with these guys. And uh, we didn't want to bother him or anything, but it was just an interesting, you know, unexpected thing. Like, wow, who, who thinks you're going to go to Yosemite and, like, be surrounded by Mexicans and Mexican food? But whatever, it was great. Um, so the whole time, I think we had five nights there. And, I mean, it, it's, it was just unbelievable. We, we floated the Merced River in a raft. And, again, like, it was just so cool for me to look at, at my wife and see her heart just, like, bursting with 
joy and love and excitement and happiness. And it was so fun for her to get to be a tour guide for us and tell us, you know, about Vernal Falls and about the different places and about the the climbs that she used to do out there and, and where she used to hike to and from and some of the stories and adventures that she had. And we, we went to the little swimming pool down there in the valley and she was telling us about that and the cabins and how she used to be a housekeeper. And it was just so cool for me to see her um, get to kind of be our tour guide, you know, for that stuff. And it was amazing for me to discover it, you know, for the first time myself. And uh, we just had an amazing time. Every single night that I was there in Yosemite, one of the things that I did was I signed up to uh, to win the lottery because uh, to uh, to climb Half Dome, not not the face of it, but the backside of it. And you have to you have to get a lottery ticket basically to uh, climb the cables on the backside. Anybody can hike up to the backside, but to be able to go up the cables, you have to. Uh, basically win this lottery, which is like a daily thing. And I remember I had to pay like five bucks a day. You have to sign up for it like the night before. And if you get it, you leave at like 5 a.m. to go and hike. And all I wanted to do was hike Half Dome. And I never pulled the lottery um, ticket, you know, any day that I was there. I was so bummed out. Every night I went to bed thinking, tonight's the night I'm going to wake up at five and hike this thing by myself. And I was so excited. So now I've got something to do when I go back. The other thing that we did at Yosemite that I remember was I had bought this book in Lee Vining um, at this little bookstore called uh, Men to Match My Mountains. And it was all about Western expansion and like the frontier and pioneer days. And I I was reading that book. And every night in Yosemite, you know, we'd put the kids down, you know, to bed at like eight o'clock or whatever. And then, you know, we're not really tired yet. So we sit out by the um, uh, campfire. If we didn't have a campfire, we didn't at Yosemite, I don't think. But we would sit out there and light the lantern and just read read our books together, you know, just kind of side by side in our camp chairs. And and uh, we had a box of wine and we'd drink wine and read our book and have the camp or the uh, the lantern sort of light go in and you know headlamps on the books and just just the beauty of nature and surroundings, you know, just kind of covering us, you know. And it, it was just so amazing. So anyway. Oh, and I mentioned the Merced River float, but like that was probably the highlight for me of this whole time in Yosemite, floating the Merced River in a little raft, just just me and my little crew sitting out by the by the water on the bank with with my lady and just it was just everything I ever wanted in life, man. It was so freaking cool and the kids absolutely loved it. And and on the way out of Yosemite, we drove by El Capitan, which is in the valley, but it's kind of far from the campgrounds. And El Cap is just like, for, for anyone that's ever had any interest in rock climbing or done any rock climbing, you know that El Cap is like the pinnacle. And just standing out there and looking at it, just, uh, it's unfathomable how big it is, what it is, that, that people can climb it at all. And to see, to see anything of that size is, uh, it, it's just like strange. Like you, you don't really know how to take it in. You don't have anything to compare it to in your mind, you know, it's just utterly massive. And I, I just remember I could have stood, stood there and stared at El Cap for hours, but we had to go. And, uh, so we, we, we packed up, we got in the car and we drove out and our next stop was Sequoia National Park, where we met up with my brother Hunter and his wife Kim and their son Levin. They were living in California at the time. They rented an RV, drove out to Sequoia to meet us there. We spent a few days there just hanging out, cooking good food at the campground, hiking around, checking out the gigantic trees, 
Um, you know, it's it's just amazing, just kind of fun, fun, fun time. And from there, we went over to um, Kings Canyon National Park, checked that out a little bit, had a great time there. So much more to be said for these places, but I got to move on. And, uh, and after we left California, we um, continue on towards Flagstaff, Arizona for kind of our last phase of the trip. Now we're headed back east, you know, and so we're heading that back that way. And on the way to Flagstaff, we stopped by Hoover Dam, get out, check it out. It was literally, I think it was 114 degrees outside. Unbelievably hot. Hoover Dam's totally cool. Um, check that out. We keep driving to, um, to Flagstaff. And for some reason, at this point in the trip, I remember I had discovered the Stuff You Should Know podcast. And, and I was just cranking out episode after episode of the podcast in the car, just driving. And, uh, and so that sticks out in my mind. But we, we drive all the way to Flagstaff. We get to the KOA and we meet up with our friends, the Eatons. And oh my gosh, it's, it's so fun to just meet up with people when you're traveling. Oh my God. I mean, you guys that have done this know how cool that is. Like it's cool to travel together. For some reason, it's like extra cool to, to meet up with people in the middle of a trip. And, and especially when they come out and travel to the place that you're going to be at anyway. So we spend a few days in Flagstaff, Arizona with the Eatons hanging out. We go to Sedona. We go to the Slide Rock State Park and slide down these rocks. Look that up. Slide Rock State Park in Arizona. Unbelievable. Had a freaking great time there. We had this beautiful campsite where we were kind of side by side and put these picnic tables together and put up these Christmas lights and it was just amazing eating dinner out there together, just laughing, hanging, hanging out, having a good time. From there, we go to Durango, Colorado. And uh, for Durango, we're at this uh, little uh, city uh, RV park that's got this beautiful grass, and there's a train running through it, this old steam engine. Um, the the uh, I forget what it's called now, but the steam engine runs through. We were putting pennies down on the railroad track like you do, let the train smash the pennies. So much fun, and we happened to be there on my son Wynn's uh, birthday. I think it was his ninth birthday, or maybe it was eight. I don't remember, eight or nine, but um, we had his birthday out there, had a freaking blast, and on his birthday, we uh, went whitewater rafting on the Animus River with us and the Eatons and their crew. We all get whitewater rafting you know, gear on and everything. We, this group takes us down the river, I have a freaking blast. And it was so cool for me to see my son, like, you know, visualizing himself as the kind of kid that whitewater rafts, you know? And he was just, he just felt so freaking cool. Like, what's cooler than going whitewater rafting? I mean, almost nothing. <laughs> um, that's like bragging rights forever, right? And so we, we raft the Animus River. Beautiful, amazing time. You know, it was, it was wild. It was bumpy. It was hairy. And it was so much fun. And, uh, and then from there, uh, oh, and our friends, the Wenhams came and showed up and camped with us there as well. And it just, it was so great to see, to see them and just be out and about with friends and family and, and just having a good time. And from there, we drive out to our very last stop on the trip, uh, Taos, New Mexico, where we camp with our good friends, Tido and his son, Simon. And it was kind of our last time to meet up with people. And it, again, it's just so cool when people will come and just join you for the fun stuff that you're doing, you know. And so we hang out there um, in the Cimarron Canyon. And we just, just had an amazing time again, right by this little creek, hanging out with Tito and Simon. Beautiful time, so much fun, so many memories, hiking around there. And we have to leave and come back home. And again, like, 
at the beginning of this trip, you know, we didn't realize it at the time, but it was like God was just saying to us, like, you're about to go through some trouble. Let me give you this gift, you know, before you get to the trouble. And so it was just such a great, like, deep breath and a great restful time. Five weeks on the road, so many states, so many national parks, um, so much fun. And when we were coming home, we were literally like, me and Makai were looking at each other, like, driving through Oklahoma, going like, I could keep going. I could keep going. We just wanted to stay gone. Um, just gone, gone, gone forever. Just stay on the road, man. The kids were loving it. We were loving it. But, uh, you know, the money was running out and we had to get back home and, and, and get back to real life. But that was not our last big giant trip. You know, we're, we're going to do many more like that. We've already done a couple and we're going to keep cranking on those. And I can't wait to tell you about those in future episodes. But that covers our amazing um, giant camping trip uh, in the summer of 2018. And so we get back to North Little Rock and um, we're back to trouble. Okay. And so I got to tell you about kind of the, the, the way that things were moving and, uh, and then we'll wrap up this episode. Okay. All right. So back to North Little Rock and back to the situation that was kind of beginning and unfolding at our church. Now, Going back in time a little bit, I, I just can't overstate just how invested we were in this church. I mean, it honestly, uh, for years up to this point, when I would put my kids to to sleep at night and tuck them in, you know, we would always like say our bedtime prayers, you know, and part of that for me has always been, you know, just uh, saying what I'm thankful for. You know, I want to instill a spirit of gratitude in my kids. And so I try to exemplify that, especially in my prayers and stuff. And so, you know, every night that I would put them down, I would always say, you know, God, we thank you for our friends. We thank you for our family. And we thank you for our church, you know. And and that, that was just always, those are the three things that I'm like the most thankful for. Friends, family, and a, this amazing, like vibrant church situation that we were in, you know, we, it, it was just, uh, our community was so completely like, it, it was, it was all folded together. There was no distinction between our church and our life outside of church, you know, in fact, we had, uh, there was like a hashtag that a lot of people would use, you know, when we, when people would get together outside of church or even at church, but the hashtag was, we are fellowship North. And it, and that just I thought that was just like the perfect um, you know way to kind of summarize like what it was like the church is just a building but we are the people that make it up, and so like it was just um, it was just a major major um, you know part of our lives and you know it still is but just in a different way now, and so basically what was happening you know kind of in the second half of 2018 was. You know, Craig had retired and had sort of stepped out of his leadership role. He was still on the elder board, but he wasn't like on staff anymore. And like I said, that just kind of, the tides were shifting a little bit and, you know, there was some uncertainty. The thing that really started to um, throw up a red flag for me was this uh, this book series that we that we were going through as part of this like um, elder training class or leadership training, whatever, I don't remember what they called it. 
And the book was just, the book series was just really troubling to me. And like, before I say anything else, I just, I want to just really, really um, make clear that I have nothing but love for everybody at that church, everybody that was involved in any of these stories. You know, I've processed and worked through things on my own and and I've communicated with, with certain people and sort of patched things up in, in the ways that it seemed necessary to me. And, you know, there, there's nothing but love, nothing but love, man. But at the time, you know, things were just sort of getting tense and it really didn't um, culminate fully until the next year. But at this point in time, it was, the, the tension was kind of building. And as I say, like any, any time like a church is going through a big transition, there's a million different things that affect the outcome and, and the tone and like the temperature of things at any given moment. And so it would be really impossible to like communicate. It's not like there's just three things or two things or one thing. You know, it was a million different things and a, a bunch of different personalities and perspectives. And, you know, um, there's some validity to all of those things. You know, this is just my perspective, right? So the thing about this book series, um, it was called First Principles. And, you know, some people like it. Um, I I don't. <laughs> um, anyway, this book series was kind of getting uh, promoted a lot at the church. And, you know, for us, a lot of us had never heard of it. And so people were going through it. And like I said, some people were liking it. and uh, But there were strong opinions about it generally. It was either, you know, the next big thing or it was um, no good at all. And I was uh, among the group that thought it was really no good at all because when I started reading it, there was just some like red flags that were popping up to me personally. And one of the things that I noticed early on was right in the introduction to the book, um, there was a sentence in there uh, that was just really like alarming and kind of disturbing. And it, it, I had to like read it twice. And, and I kind of read it several times. And I was like, wait a minute, is that really what this says? And for me, in my perspective, this is this the idea that um, really came in and was like the primary thing that started to cause things to really crumble and crack within the church. And the this statement in the introduction of this book, this first principles books, was it said, and this is kind of this blows my mind, and it's it maybe this isn't verbatim, but I'm pretty sure it was. This is pretty close to what it said. The sentence was, "The Christian life is about rigorous mastery of a complex set of religious principles." Period. And I read that sentence, and I was just like, wait a minute, what? Rigorous mastery of complex religious principles? Wait a minute. I don't think that's correct. I do not think that's what the Christian life is about. Um, The Christian life, in my opinion, is about sharing the good news that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son down to the earth to pay the price for all the shit that you would do wrong in your life. And that there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it. You can't back out of it. You can accept it or reject it, but it still doesn't change 
that he did it. And that's the belief. That's my personal belief. That's the belief of, you know, I think that's really the foundational belief of all gospel believing Christians, right? I mean, it's the John 3.16 thing, right? So it's not about some kind of uh, rigorous mastery of anything or even half-assed mastery of anything. Um, In fact, it's about the opposite. It's about accepting that you're really never going to be very good at much of anything and uh and counting on someone that was better than you to do the hard work for you and that's Jesus died on the cross that that's what it's about it's not about religious principles um in fact you know if you ask me Jesus was killed by people who thought that the spiritual life was about rigorous mastery of a complex set of religious principles you know that was the old way of doing things that was the that was the old way of doing things and you know in my opinion since the very beginning of time when god created people and set them down here on the planet he basically charged them with this uh mission of mastering some complex religious principles and you know what they always failed they always failed they always failed they never got it right to the point that Jesus had to come down and do it himself. I mean, is that not the gospel? You know, is that not what we believe? And so these books really, 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 in my mind, challenged everything that I had already believed uh, and and come to believe about, you know, my faith and spirituality and, and, you know, the Jesus story in particular. Uh, with that one sentence, and there was a lot of other things that were similar, and I just didn't like the idea. This book was this book series was um, suggesting that it takes an academic to really be a good Christian, and I thought, well, what about the uneducated? What about the people with mental, you know, challenges that that just can't kind of get there? Uh, what about the illiterate? What about addicts? What about sexual slavery? And what about people that can't devote their lives to studying the scriptures and this sort of stuff? You know, and and, in my mind, the answer was like, if the gospel isn't for the illiterate, homeless, mentally disabled person, then it ain't the gospel. You know, I mean, that's that that was the hang up that i had it it has to be for everybody if it's not for everybody it's not the gospel um because i know that jesus wouldn't have come down to the earth and died for uh, uh for only academics i mean come on and so as we were studying these books with our little uh leadership training group we would have these conversations about them and and I would say these things, like these are the comments that I would say, like what, I, what I'm just sharing with you right now. I was just being honest because I thought, you know, if they would potentially want me to be an elder here, they need to know what I really think about stuff so they know what they're getting, you know. In, in other words, like I'm not going to pull any punches in this training group. Um, I'm going to, you know, be myself and, and my full self. And... uh and so the elder training group or whatever you want to call it was kind of split on um, these books. And some, you know, some people were into it. Some people were really against it. And that was kind of, 
it, so it was just uncomfortable. It was weird. And, and of course, like in my mind, I'm thinking there's so many different books that we could have read that, you know, are kind of already accepted as like, you know, just like foundational books like Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis or Basic Christianity by John Stott. You know, these these types, of, like there's there's so many good books to choose from. Why choose something that would have this controversial message to it? And, you know, in my mind, just incorrect, you know, I'm sorry. That's just, I call it like I see it, right? And so the group was kind of beginning to shatter and stuff. And, and, and towards the end of that year, I don't really remember how long we were in this like elder training thing, but at some point uh, towards the end of that year, everybody in that elder training group got an email that said, um, thank you for your time. We are not going to choose any of you guys to be elders right now. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, well, damn, that, that's the end of that, you know. And, uh, and, and, you know, to be fair, they were saying like, look, there's lots of transitions happening uh, here at the church with, um, you know, just kind of the leadership and the other elders and stuff. And, you know, there's sort of pastoral changes happening. And like, we don't want to do too many changes at once. So we're gonna, you know, just sort of pause this for the moment. Well, it wasn't really a pause. It was the end. Um, and they were saying like, we don't want to do too much at once. And so I was like, all right, I, I get it. But like, also, you know, that, that kind of sucks. And um, not just because we wanted to be elders, but like, you know, we had put in some time and, and, uh, and effort and, you know, to be kind of dismissed with an email was, you know, it's kind of a bummer, but whatever life goes on. Right. Um, but, uh, but it was just troubling. Now at the exact same time, as all of that was going on and the pastor changing and, um, you know, the elder boards like move, making changes. Of course, I wasn't an elder, so I didn't really get to know what they were really talking about behind the scenes. But there was some uh, there were some other changes going on as well. Um, and what I came to find out was there was some like issues between uh, the some of the elders and one of the pastors about. um some stuff that I don't really want to get into, to be honest, but it was just, there was just some, it just was uncomfortable. And you could kind of see like, oh, I don't, I don't like this, man. That's just, that's just kind of where I was at. But also at the same time, me and a good buddy of mine, Barry, had kind of stepped into the role of running the men's ministry programs at the church, like in an unofficial capacity, basically. Um, because that there was a little bit of a gap there uh, because of, well, whatever, but there wasn't anybody kind of really running it in, in any sense, like on a regular basis. And so really for the whole year I had been, me and Barry had been kind of putting together programs and like a schedule of events. And we would do these men of the Ozarks retreats. And at this point I had kind of grown into my role as Craig's like sidekick, like co-leader on the men of the Ozarks retreats. And I was going to every single one of them and I was basically doing half of the leading and I was really doing hundred percent of the planning on the front end, like putting the teams together and putting the groups together and getting all the materials like printed and, and, you know, all the, all the work that has to be done before the actual retreat happens. And I was loving that and just feeling like I was totally stepping into like, you know, uh, I don't want to say my calling cause that's like a little bit of a cheesy term, but like, that's basically what it was, you know, it was like, I felt really well equipped and passionate to, um, to do this. And, uh, and so, you know, so we did the retreats and we also did these like story night, you know, week, like monthly things. And we had a weekly Bible study and 
we had like a, a crawfish boil in the in the spring and like a barbecue in the fall and so like I had been um, me and my crew crew were were kind of like putting together some pretty cool programs you know and and, and that was just my way of trying to hold together in whatever way that I could this church of people who I loved and, and cared about and who had been so impactful to me in my life. And, and it was like, this is the only place I have any real influence. And so I'm going to do my best to just like keep the crew together, keep the crew together. And, you know, so all this stuff is just kind of happening, you know, and, uh, and, and I could just sort of tell, like, I don't feel like this is going to end well. Um, I just felt like it wasn't going to end well. And, but I, but I thought like, maybe we can, uh, maybe we can pull something off, you know? And, and of course, like you're asking yourself, like, what does God want me to do? What does God want for this church in this moment? And my only real answer was like, well, Jacob, God wants you to do what you can do and, and like continue to like, uh, be a person that, that is, is motivated by love and, uh, and, and so I was, I was, you know, of course I don't do anything perfectly, but that was my motivation was love and, and compassion and trying to keep this church together. And, you know, in, in some way, like I know that I have a gift of, uh, bringing people together that have different viewpoints. You know, I, I, I like to have, I like for my life to be very diverse with diverse perspectives and diverse people and, and I'm pretty good at kind of keeping people happy together and making people not making, but you know, making a space where people can be friends that maybe wouldn't have been friends before. And I thought, well, if I can do that in the men's ministry stuff, then maybe I can sort of inspire that within the church itself. Um, and also, at the same time, not to diminish, like, my role in anything, um, I was being pretty vocal about what I thought about, you know, this book series and, you know, some of the, like, issues that were kind of popping up. And, you know, everybody was kind of talking like, well, what do you think about this and this and this? And, I, you know, I'm not I'm not going to shy away from saying my opinion um, if I'm asked for it. And sometimes even when I'm not asked for it, you know, I'm going to say what I got to say, especially when it comes to stuff that what I would stuff that I would consider like really, really matters. Um, you know, like the gospel itself, you know? Um, so anyway, that was kind of the situation. It was just, it was just troubling. And I could just see some writing on the wall that like this place is crumbling, especially after watching that cross fall. Again, it was just like, Oh my God, like that is the most biblical sign I've ever seen in my life. And like, you know what? Me, Jacob Slayton, is I'm not capable of putting that cross back together and standing it up again, you know. And maybe God wanted it to fall. Maybe God wanted the church to crumble a little bit so that it could be rebuilt, you know, in some other way. And you know, it's sort of yet to be seen, like what what will happen with that. But time will tell, and God is good. Now, uh, the last thing that happened um, that year that that really hit me hard was um, Joanna. Joanna was and is a uh, beautiful little girl um who I think was 4 years old in 2018 and uh and she got leukemia and she is still um kicking ass and fighting through it right now thank god I don't want to set you up for uh, anything super sad right here um because um she's a survivor um she's a survivor she's still struggling with it but uh but she's surviving it and she's she's going to she's going to make it um, I believe it. 
but in 2018, um, she, she gets sick with leukemia and it was just, um, Joanna, the news about Joanna, um, just, just hit everybody so hard. And, and when we're already, um, battling about some other stuff, um, it just, it just came as just a death blow, um, to me personally. I just can't freaking stand it when, um, when innocent people, um, are, uh, are, are kicked around or, or, or get sick or get hurt. Um, I, I just consider myself a protector of uh, people that can't protect themselves. And, uh, and and when Joanna got sick, it was just like, like it was like somebody um, just like slowed the music down. Like when you have a tape, like a reel-to-reel machine, and you click stop, it takes a second for it to wind down, you know, and it goes, and it stops. And uh, And that's the way that the year ended for me. Um, and it wasn't looking good. And, and, and we're looking at 2019 and I was not excited about it. We're, we're standing there, you know, on the doorway, um, in between 2018 and 2019 and we're peering out over the horizon and, uh, and, and 2019 is stretching up tall on the edge of the sky and, and just like, just taunting us to defy it. And that's what it seemed like going into that next year. The dark cloud that had been moving our way in 2018 uh, just expands and erupts into a full on blackout. Like the executioner making his way up to the gallows. <sighs> I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> 